This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, we're in the second week of a series that we called Sexy. I opened it up last week talking about uh, Genesis chapter 1, this creation that God describes. And in that chapter, he shares with us that he created us in his image. And I think one of the most powerful takeaways for me last week was that that every person, every person born bears the image of God. And when we realize that it should radically reshape the way that we treat people. But in that uh, kind of caveat of verses in Genesis 126 and 27, it says that God made us in his image, male and female. He made us. And I shared with you last week the the truth that not in one male and not in one female is the full image of God. It's in the complement of the two natures that are given to men and women that the image of God is born on earth. And so I told you that what we were going to do is spend the next few weeks trying to reclaim that heart. That so many of us have been pushed and prodded and and completely compelled against over uh, the past few years as we've just lived in a culture that has tried to minimize uh, the differences instead of celebrating them. And so uh, today I, I told you that I had invited my friend Debbie. Debbie and I met about a year ago uh, when uh, she posted this really amazing blog that went viral all over and made you super internet famous, which is so fun, right? Um, to be internet famous. Um, but it, it was one of those weeks that I was preparing, and I was like, this story fits so perfectly into the message. So I messaged her and asked her for her permission um, to, to use that story. And then after that, uh, God really kind of opened the door for her to uh, have a relationship with my wife and, and coach my wife for, for a few months, and then even my mom. And so she's been uh, a very um, big part of our family from a distance. And so her story was so powerful that as we kind of began this conversation today about reclaiming the heart of a woman, I thought that it would be really awesome to bring her in. So would you give my friend Debbie a warm welcome today? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks for letting me be here. I would love to start with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful group of people. Thank you for bringing us here. Will you just clear our mind of distractions? Help us to focus on you, to bask in your glory. Help me to not say anything stupid. And if it is, that it will be quickly forgotten. And we give you all the praise. Amen. I wanted to start by sharing a, a wonderful Bible verse from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
So I got married um, several years ago, back in 2001, to a PE teacher, which is funny because I hated all things exercise. And we had four little boys within four years. So I do have twins. They're, everybody's here today and we're really excited. And it was, it was a lot. It's a lot to go from being a teacher to being a baby maker, to being a stay-at-home mom. So it was very full days. And so my husband, Aaron, really enjoyed escaping the house, going into God's creation just to enjoy nature, to go hiking, to go camping, to go hunting. And, and he needed that freedom. I mean, all of us need some breaks from the parenthood game sometimes. And so sometimes I would remember he would share stories about sleeping in bear cages so that bears could not get him while he was camping, or he would share stories about sleeping with a knife on his chest just in case like a mountain lion or a bear was around. So that's super settling for a mom. And so I would kind of joke to him before his trips, which sometimes he would go with friends and sometimes he would go alone and I would get in his face and say, don't make me a single mom. You have to come back. Like, you know you have to come back. I cannot do this. And he would start laughing, and he would say, no, I know you cannot do this. Like, <laughs> you would be horrible. And so it was this running joke. And so it was just five years ago that the four boys and I decided to go down to his parents' house for a vacation. It was August, and I was going to take the four kids while he got to play bachelor, you know, just sleep in, not have the nagging wife because – Let's face it, I was a bit of a nagging wife. And so the boys and I went down to his parents' house down near the beach, and it was awesome. It was just, you know, nice to have some help with the boys, even though I did miss my husband. And so one of the mornings I woke up and I texted my husband, just, you know, an everyday text. Don't forget to bring dog food, you know, when you come down in a few days, that kind of text. And I didn't hear from him, but I was like, well, he's asleep, so it's fine. So we got the boys ready to enjoy the summer sun in their bathing suits. And I just found myself texting my husband again, because that's what wives do. We constantly have to communicate our every thought with our husbands and expect them to respond quickly. And so I was starting to notice like, wow, I haven't heard from him all morning. His phone's probably dead or he's playing racquetball at the Y, like he'll get to me eventually. And so around lunchtime, I took one of my twins down to the house to make lunch. And we were stirring macaroni and cheese. And I looked at Joshua and I said, you know, I haven't heard from daddy all day. What do you think he's doing? And he looked at me just plain as day, four years old. And he said, well, he's dead. And my eyes were huge and I popped him in the mouth and said, don't ever say that. Why would you say that? And I just moved on and I was like, I need to push this thought out of my head. Like, it's a four-year-old, like, come on. And so we went back outside to the dock and just sat in the sunshine and I kept texting my husband. And I was like, well, I'll just text him every hour. That's not too naggy. It should be okay. I knew that he was getting ready for a beach trip and then was going to join us later. So I'm trying to respect his space, but kind of not. And then by late afternoon, I looked at his dad and said, you know, I haven't heard from your son all day. It's kind of rude. And I'm a little bit concerned. And he was like, how concerned are we talking? And I said, well, I, 
I will be fine until 10 o'clock, but surely by bedtime he will call or text me back. An hour passed, hour, 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 and I looked at my phone and it was 10.01, and I said, well, now it's time to get worried. And he kind of looked at me and said, are you serious? And I got on the phone and started calling our Sprint company to see if they could tell me any activity on my husband's phone, which they cannot. And I called neighbors and friends and I posted on Facebook, has anybody talked to my husband? Like, this is so crazy. And it was a very surreal time. One of our neighbors agreed to go look for him. He said, you know, maybe he's at school. You know, maybe because your husband, he was like, he always is at school, even in the summertime, he just loves his PE position so much. Maybe he's out there. And within a few minutes, he called, and he said, I see his Jeep. And I was like, great, where is he? And he said, I don't know. This is scary. This is 11 o'clock at night, Debbie, and it's really dark, and I need help. And I was like, it'll be fine. He's probably playing, you know, some kind of prank on us. So you just start looking for him, and we'll get some friends rallied. So very quickly, dozens of friends came to look for Aaron behind his school because there's about 100 acres of wood where his Jeep was parked. And it was very surreal to, to go through this, like, well, why isn't he answering his phone? It's been a really long day. This isn't really funny anymore, and I don't think I'm being a nagging wife at this point. And... My friend and neighbor said, Debbie, it's, it's time to call the police. Can you call the police? <laughs> I was like, what? You're not serious, are you? And he said, it's time. And so I called the police, and I said, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I guess I'm filing a missing persons report, but it's not really real. It's not a real missing persons report. We just ha can't really figure out where he is. And so quickly, lots of police were where Aaron's Jeep was, and they were looking at 11 o'clock at night for my husband, Aaron. And then search dogs were brought in and unable to pick up his scent. And helicopters with thermal imaging were scheduled to be flying out soon to start looking for him, and then a rookie team would come in and spread out over the woods and start their search. And in those moments, you become extremely prayerful. <laughs> you really talk to the Lord a lot because you know that he knows. He knows where Aaron is and exactly what's going on. And so I had enough by 1 a.m. and got in the car with my mother-in-law. We drove the four hours from Topsail to Winston-Salem, which is where we live. And we were going over all the scenarios. Well, maybe there was a fox. Maybe he broke his leg. Like this is going to be a really funny story one day. And we pulled up to this school, and it was like watching the movie The Green Mile, where I'm like walking the Green Mile with police cars, policemen, and friends just kind of staring at me. And it was so surreal to talk to policemen about my husband if he was on drugs, if his students hated him, if we were divorcing, things like this that you never think you're actually going to have to share. And I just kept praying as dawn started to come about and the sky was starting to lighten up. And his sister had had enough and said, I'm, I'm going to go find my brother. And she did. She did. 
and there was a scream that I wish I could really describe and convey to you, but just imagine the worst possible scream that went for millions of miles. And I knew this is not good. I hoped for the best, but I knew this was not good. And I watched a lot of policemen run into the woods as a lot of friends came out. And my husband was dead. So my little four-year-old Joshua was right. Daddy was dead. He had been working on his tree stand and fell very high from the tree and did not make it. And that is very hard to say to you right now. And as I sat there waiting for them to bring my dead husband's body out of the woods, I kind of had this silent conversation with God. I was like, okay, okay, you allowed this. And all my eggs are in your basket now. You allowed this, and either you're my savior or you're not. And so this is all on you. I'm trusting you to get me through these next few minutes of life. Knowing that right now, our sons are waking up four hours away, yawning and playing with Legos, and their dad is dead. And so after they brought my husband's lifeless body out of the woods, I went in. I needed to see and know that it was real. And the investigator told me, he said, well, he didn't die on impact. You should know that. He, he crawled. He was crawling his way down the trail that he had made. And I said, of course he did. Of course, that's Aaron, because he was stubborn, and he was a great family man, and he was just going to get right back in that Jeep and drive himself to the hospital so that he could spend some time at the beach. Of course. And that just showed his character. And he said, I want you to know he died in a very peaceful position. He died with his hands folded gently across his chest. And I was like, there's no doubt that those last few seconds before his heart stopped, that his eyes and his thoughts were on the Lord. And so I had about five hours before I had to tell our children that they were fatherless, which is just as you imagine, extremely painful to sit those little children who are four, four, seven, and eight, to sit them down and say, I'm sorry to tell you that your dad is dead and you will never see him again unless you know the Lord. And that's the good news is that if you know the Lord and if you really love him, you will get to spend forever with him and you will see him again but it's going to be a really long wait and God was very good to us to get us in that funeral home as I walked four little boys to a casket where we could see this lifeless man we love so much all of this had so many silver linings because I got to deepen my faith and I got to teach our children that God is real, that there are really streets of gold, that we can go beyond the story aspect of the Bible with Daniel and the lion's den. Isn't that a really neat story? But really learning about the truth of God, the beauty of heaven, the painlessness of paradise, 
I was like, this is the best of the worst. Like, we've been given lemons, but God makes the sweetest lemonade. And Aaron had told me at a funeral one time, he said, I said, why aren't you crying? Why are you not crying? It's your, it's your aunt. Why are you not upset? It's her funeral. And he was like, why would I be upset? This is the best thing that could happen to anybody. Dying is the very best thing that can happen to anybody. And so that's what I shared when I spoke at his funeral. I want to share Zephaniah 317 with you, which reads, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And so we got to experience in full force God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. What a gift he gave us to give us the best of the worst. And I really did learn that his power is perfected in weakness. He got us through those days and continues to do so because it is really hard. And so I would teach our little boys this verse from Psalm 68, 5 that says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And so I taught them, you are so important that God specifically mentions you in the Bible. That he is your father, that he is the lover of my soul, and that he takes special care of us. And so as time passed, I know that people had been praying, I hope that girl gets a man. She needs a man. She's young. Those kids need a, they need a man to keep them in line because they're crazy. I know that people prayed that, but they were smart enough to not say it to my face, which was really good. But God answers prayers. That's his job. That's what he does. And in his infinite wisdom, I did meet a new man. And interestingly enough, it was a man that, that I already knew and that Aaron already loved. And his name is Jason, and, and he was one of those awesome friends looking in the woods for about seven hours for his buddy Aaron, going through swamps and cornfields, calling his name. Despite the cops trying to tell everybody to come out, he would not come out because he had to find his friend. And it's so ironic to me that as he was looking for his friend that he would not find, that his path eventually would lead to marrying this man's wife. And it is very weird, and it was very soon, much sooner than anybody felt okay with. But God doesn't follow our rules, as you know, probably in your own life. And so I had the pleasure of being married a second time years later, after losing Aaron, to this amazing man who continues to let me grieve as he grieves his friend being gone. And the most amazing thing is how death can really refine us. Because I'm pretty stubborn, I'm pretty hard-headed, not real bright. <laughs> and God said, I cannot whisper to her. She requires me to shout. And so he shouted. And so what I have learned as a bride for the second time is to cherish the mundane. 
you know how every day becomes like Groundhog Day where you're like, can you please take out the trash for like the eighth time? Can you please stop leaving dishes in the sink? Can I please stop picking up your shoes that you put by the front door? And it's all about ourselves. I want you to be a robot, basically, is what we're telling our spouse. Do this for me. And I realized how guilty I was of doing this, but it was too late. It was too late for me to be a better wife to Aaron. All the times I had been so inwardly focused, saying, meet my needs, do the stuff, make me number one, when that is not his job. That's God's job. And so I've learned being married a second time, something I hope you don't have to do the second time. I'm hoping that God gets to whisper in your life instead of shout to cherish the mundane. I refuse to let anybody in my house wash the final load of Aaron's laundry. I was like, please, please don't touch those clothes. I would give anything to pick up those socks off the floor that I will never pick up again. And washing that final load of laundry was the most amazing blessing that I had taken for granted for so many years. We are all on a divine countdown. Every single one of us, even though we want to die in our sleep on our 99th birthday, it may not happen. And there's a chance that you might see the face of God this afternoon. It kind of sobers us up, right? And so in those moments when I'm tempted as a wife for the second time to start that complaining, that nagging, that kind of snarky attitude, I redirect my eyes to the Lord and usually ask for like, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I screwed up again. Help me out here. Help me to be a better wife. My goal is to keep my eyes on Christ, that he is my everything, that Jason is wonderful, but Christ is my everything. Colossians 3.23 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So all this, the mundane, the monotony of marriage, our goal is to serve each other. Aaron always used the letters J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. But so many times we get it backwards. We're like, no, ourself, and then I'll think of everybody else, and then I got God in my back pocket as like this last resort. And Jesus says, no, me first. Because all those times I had joked to Aaron, don't make me a single mom. I couldn't handle it. I really think Jesus was like, girl, you are so right. You cannot do this. Those kids are crazy. You're a maniac. But I can do it. Watch me work. I'll work through you. But you are a mess. You cannot do this. And I did do it. Maybe not well, but I did do it. And so my goal is to happily submit to Jason, to build him up, to respect him, to support him, 
to put him first after God, to nurture him regardless of how he responds. And he is a wonderful man. And maybe I'm, I'm not, definitely not talking about like abusive situations when I mention the word submission, which I know is like this controversial term in our culture. But I will happily be under that safe umbrella that he provides as husband. And what a joy to do his laundry, to pick up those clothes every single time. Because I realize that God had to shout at me, and I don't want him to have to shout. I simply want to obey. And I'm curious, like, whatever your current struggle is, whatever your valley is right now, where you're really aching for the Lord to step in, does he get to whisper, or will he have to shout? It's really hard when he shouts. But that article that Kevin talked about, it's called Stop Being a Butthole Wife. Uh, I don't know if that's a bad word in your house, but um, it really is so different now how I can reflect back on that I was. I was the nag, do this, serve me. We had a good marriage, but I'm not sure it's everything it could have been. And how kind of God to give me this second chance to serve to love, to listen, to do all the stuff joyfully because every day matters because that divine countdown will never leave my mind. Those flashbacks of a man being pulled out of the woods will never leave my mind. And so I know your spouse is imperfect, but I challenge you to forgive the person that potentially is sitting right next to you, that you would love them well. But if you knew today was it, this is it, because tomorrow you'll see the face of God, how differently you would love. So I thank you for letting me get to share my story, which hopefully becomes in some way your story, because I'm just some girl, but we all serve the same amazing God who loves you so much and I would love to be able to pray for you now. Jesus, thank you so much for being so faithful in the past and faithful in the future. We trust you fully. We love you. We beg for your forgiveness and, and bask in the fact that we can change right now to live for you, to be amazing wives that serve joyfully because we are serving you. Everything is unto you, Lord. I pray that you would bless everyone in this room, help them to fall more in love with you, to know you better, to reflect you in their lives. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you. What I'm going to do right now for us is take a few moments and kind of create a few uh, points of application from Debbie's story. If you're a woman here, and when we think about reclaiming the heart that God designed for you, the first thing that I want you to see is that you were created to be helpful and to solve problems. And I think that it's so often 
that one of the core identities that we have is actually the place where we receive the highest level of attack. All right. In, in the greatest level of disarm, because it is your God made you to be that way. So when Debbie says, you know, I, I, I used to complain about the socks, but then afterwards I looked at them as as blessings. Because the perspective totally shifted. See, it's so interesting to me that in the the kind of origin of creation as God shares us with it, that the first problem in humanity was that man was found to be alone. And it's interesting to me that, that we, we say man is in the masculine sense, but the word Adam in Hebrew literally means humanity. And so man was found, Adam was found to be alone, and it was a problem. It didn't catch God off guard, so he created Woman, woman as the answer to the first problem. And I think that there's a lot culturally, especially in the past, that have taught that the heart that God designed inside of a woman is actually a liability, that that your femininity is a liability, but it's really not. It's such an asset because God made something inside of you that is designed to solve problems. As a matter of fact, it was the answer to the first problem ever in creation. You were designed to be helpful. You were designed to be. God made you to see a problem and to help solve it. But when I say that oftentimes in our core identities is the highest level of the attacks that we receive, it is so often to find that women who are resisting the urge to be helpful and instead of being helpful become what Debbie said that she was. Nag. And point out the problem instead of the solution. And so I want to ask you a question. Are you being helpful or are you making things more difficult? Are you being helpful or are you making things more difficult? Because you're designed to be helpful. The, the second thing is, is that you have this ability to bring things out of people that they never knew that they were capable of. I mean, as a parent, we see this, right? Because our kids are so naturally disobedient. You ever notice that about your kids? Like, you don't have to teach them to disobey. They just figure that out on their own. But we have to nurture within them the capacity to learn to obey. I think that when you listen to Debbie's story, and she talks about that moment of realization right after the discovery of Aaron, that, that her four kids were father. And that she was going to have to walk them through this story and through this portion of their lives. What you see is that she was able, through God's power, to pull something out of them that they probably never knew existed. And God used her to nurture that story within them. See, there are some of you that are married, and ladies, you see things in your husband that your husband doesn't see in him at all. 
you see a man that he could be. And really, God has uniquely positioned you to help him and support him to become the man that you see in him. Even if he doesn't see it himself. The third thing is that you are designed to be supportive. You are designed to be supportive. Ephesians 5 is kind of the premier passage on uh, marriage, and marriage kind of is a living example of the way that the complement between men and women exists on the planet, and it's not just in that specific relationship, but really within the relationships that are established within humanity. And when it speaks to the woman, it says this to the wife in Ephesians 5.21, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is how it starts out. Submit to one another. All right. So it's not there. There's a so now it's going to go off and say there is a difference in the type of submission that a husband has and the type of submission that a wife has. So wives now. This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as the church submits to Christ, you as wives should submit to your husbands in everything. All right. This this is the desire to be supportive and to look at my husband and say, lead on. Lead on. Because I think that there's nothing that causes the heart of a man to come more alive than to know that his wife is looking at him saying, lead me and I will follow you. But there's something that's broken in that. You remember the original story of sin, what happened? Eve was tempted. She ate of a a fruit that she wasn't supposed to. But there's an interesting dynamic in Scripture, right, that happens after that. And there's something subversive happening in that moment, which is really out of Genesis 3.16. It says this as, as God is pronouncing the effects of all sin. It says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. A greater uh, understanding of that verse means that your desire will be for your husband's position in your life. You will want to have the position that he has, but he will rule over you. Because the brokenness in humanity is that, that there is this compulsion to try to take things that aren't ours. And in the design of a marriage, it is designed that a, that a wife would submit to her husband's leadership. I'm going to spend a whole lot more time talking about this next week. But a, but a husband is designed to submit his life to the needs that his wife has. And see, I think that sometimes we misunderstand submission. Submission is not surrender. It's an intentional decision to support the leadership of both your husband and Jesus. So if you're in here today and you're asking the question, but what do I do if my husband isn't living right? My husband's not living the way he's supposed to. What do do I do then, Kevin? Well, great. The Bible has an answer for you. I don't have to answer it. All right. First Peter three. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Even if some of, you, some of them refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words, and they will be won over. Notice that that's a promise. That's a promise. They will be won over. And so, 
today I just want you to, to kind of understand that, that you were designed to be supportive. And the reason that that is, especially if you're a wife, is that your husband is going to stand one day and have to answer for your family, you won't. Which is why when you fast forward to the book of Romans and the sin epidemic that spread throughout all humanity is described, we are described as being born under Adam. The failure is placed on the shoulder of Adam because he was held responsible. So if you're a wife here, let me ask you this question about your husband. Are you being supportive or are you sabotaging his leadership? Are you being supportive or are you sabotaging his leadership? Lastly, what I would tell you today is that if you're here today, I think one of the best things that we learn from her story, which I can't hear it without crying and being moved, is her story is one of the most challenging ones that I, I it's been life changing for me. And I told you before that the, the power of story is that that like she called it earlier, it's a shortcut. Right. That I can learn from someone else's story. And so one of the things that I learned is that we don't need to give them that we often don't give the most important people in our life anything less than the best version of ourselves. Because what happens is most of us in life give the most or the best versions of ourselves to people who are not the most important. So if I were going to encourage you kind of as we kind of wrap this up, don't don't give the most important people in your life anything less than the best version of yourself. Don't be the the person who comes home and goes, y'all can deal with me. Because oftentimes when, when we think about what's on your plate, the amount of work that you have to do at home between parenting and, and taking care of a home and, and doing the work that you do all day long, it, there, there is too much to get done in a day. There just is. And you're going to cheat someone. Don't cheat God. Don't cheat your family. If you're going to choose to cheat, cheat something else. See, are you giving the best of yourself? And let me just ask you this question. Are you giving the best of yourself to God? Are you giving the best of yourself to God? Because so many times, we relegate our relationship with him to the last resort, like Debbie said. And he deserves the absolute best. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.